This is John Williams reaching out once again to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, this is John. Are you there? Good day to you, citizen. I want to say thank you for coming to visit with us in St. Paul. You and I were on a stage for two sold-out conversations in Minnesota where we talked about current events. You were a hit again in the 21st century, sir. Well, it was my first trip into the interior of the continent. And, you know, during my presidency, I sent Zebulon Pike up the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And he actually went through what is now St. Paul and uh, found the the falls of St. Anthony there and then went all the way up to northern Minnesota looking for the source of the Mississippi. Hmm. Why was that such a big deal for you guys? I mean, why did you care where the Mississippi started? Well, because rivers were roads and roads were rivers. There wasn't a paved road in my own Commonwealth of Virginia at the time of my death in 1826. So most of the traffic in America moved along the Ohio and the James and the Potomac and the uh, Mississippi, etc., and we needed to to determine whether these rivers were navigable. So the Mississippi is navigable from New Orleans all the way to St. Anthony Falls, all the way to where you are. Hmm. And it's an amazing thing that there's only one significant impediment in that gigantic river, the most important river in the New World. And the Missouri, Mr. Lewis discovered, is navigable all the way from St. Charles in Missouri up to what's now Great Falls, Montana, where there were five waterfalls. And then it required an 18-and-a-half-mile portage around those falls. You know, you're answering my next question. So can you take from the Gulf of Mexico a boat to the Pacific Ocean? Can you go up the Mississippi River, turn left up here somewhere, and get all the way to the waters of the Pacific? You're asking a tantalizing question because that's, one of the main reasons that I sent Meriwether Lewis up the Missouri River in 1804, he was my protege and the son of neighbors of mine and had served as my private secretary in Washington. And I was hoping that he could do exactly what you say, go down from Pittsburgh, down the Ohio, and then up to the mouth of the Missouri, and then all the way up the Missouri near to its source, And I hoped that out there in the Rock Mountains, in in the Stony Mountains, you call them the Rockies, that he would find interlocking waters, and it would be about a day or half a day's portage from navigable waters of the Missouri to navigable waters of the Columbia system. It turned out that wasn't true. The mountains were higher and broader than we could have anticipated, and he reported that it's a couple of hundred miles between navigable waters of the Missouri system and of the Columbia system. And that meant that the portage would be very difficult and, in some respects, impossible. What did Lewis and Clark do? They went up the Mississippi River, right? Well, no, that was Pike. Pike went up the Mississippi, and he discovered that you can really, if you have enough manpower, you can row a boat from New Orleans to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. And then if you want to, you can get out and move around St. Anthony Falls, it's really just about a mile portage, and then go very nearly to the source of the Mississippi River. Now, just where the source was, we were not certain, and Pike did not find it. He got close. But you know, in your time, the source is said to be at a a lake called Itasca. Mm -hmm. He got within about 100 miles of that. 
Still, that doesn't get you to the Pacific. Now, <laughs> well, now you're just in central Minnesota. But <laughs> then you not... portage. We hoped that there would be portages up to the river systems in today's Canada, that there might be. So in other words, the Missouri would be the central highway to the Pacific. But there might even be another one mm-hmm. in more northern latitudes. And, and I, I hope I speak for you when I say it was our dream that we would push the British entirely off of this continent and there would be no Canada. Canada would be just another part of the United States. That was one thing that you revealed um, when you spoke to our crowd in Minnesota was you were surprised we hadn't invaded Canada yet. Um, And then everybody, of course, chuckled. Canada is the last place in the world we would invade or take war with. We didn't see it that way in my time. You know, we, we threw the British out of the United States, the original 13 colonies. And during the Revolutionary War, And then again, during the War of 1812, the United States invaded Canada, and we hoped that we would conquer it, and that we would then expel the Tories, expel the pro-British people, or absorb them if they wished to to change their their philosophy, and that we would then control everything from the bottommost tip of Cuba all the way to the North Pole, and from the easternmost tip of the United States all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And I I called that an empire for liberty such as the world has never previously seen. In retrospect, if we had acquired Mexico, I think our lives would be a lot easier. Really, I do. I mean, not because I want more Mexicans or us to speak Spanish, but maybe some of the issues about immigration and all of the problems we have with that population would be absorbed into our our nation. You know, we would have resolved that by now. Well, I think you are correct in that sense. In other words, I don't regard myself as an imperialist, but I do believe very strongly that the the method by which the American people operate, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, due process, trial by jury of one's peers, no cruel and unusual punishments, uh, habeas corpus, the uh, the right not to have to incriminate oneself in a court of law, our system, of laws and rights and the Declaration of Independence and so on. I think that's the greatest recipe for human happiness and human liberty in the entire history of the earth, more than ancient Athens, more than Rome and the Republic, uh, more than Great Britain, certainly. And so we represented the epitome of what humans can achieve on earth. And that approach, I think, eventually will characterize every people and every nation all over the planet. So the farther we extend this idea, I mean, in other words, Mexico would not necessarily have to be part of the United States, but if it were a sister republic with the same set of basic principles, the world would be a better place and the United States would be a safer place. Well, the problem now is that we're the richest nation on earth, or one of them, and they're one of the poorer nations. And so that you talk about recipes uh, that's a recipe for problems, and we're, we're still trying to resolve that today. You know, when you were with us in St. Paul, I don't know if this is your take on it, and I haven't spoken to you about this since you visited with us on stage a couple of weeks ago, but I will tell you, it was just last week, wasn't it? It was. I, I want to tell you something that I have heard time and again from people since then. They felt that the first show you did with us in St. Paul was one of the most hostile audiences you've ever spoken to. 
and they were pleased that you didn't strike out or lash out at them. You were asked about slavery. You were asked about church and state. And and people were, I, I, I don't know if you felt that way. Did you feel defensive? Did you feel some hostility in the room that day? I don't know that I would say hostility, but certainly the, the questions were sharp, fair, penetrating, and they put me somewhat on the defensive. And I don't, I don't enjoy that, but I'll, I'll tell you this, sir. My general philosophy is always to be civil, never to take the bait, never to descend into pettiness or self-righteousness, never to strike back. I call this artificial good humor. And if you will show artificial good humor in the face of all of the rudenesses of life and all of the provocations, it will not only disarm your adversaries and, and show them what a true civil discourse would look like, but it becomes a kind of second nature. And so in the course of my long life, I learned to seek harmony on every possible occasion, irrespective of the provocations from others. Well, you had that on display uh, because it was something as simple as the separation of church and state. And the first guy who asked that first question, I know exactly what he was after. I mean, you talked about the Danbury Baptists in a letter that you wrote. But the guy wasn't really interested in that. He was saying that it just bugs him in this country that you can't have the crash on the courthouse lawn, that we can't teach the Ten Commandments or display them in a public school. And then I sort of piled on. I said, doesn't that annoy you that it devolves into that when, in fact, what's the harm of having the Ten Commandments in a school teaching it as literature or history or good behavior? And you would have none of that. And I think that's when they started to grumble a little bit. Well, I know that you were simply attempting to be a good host and moderator. You know my views on these things. But but it does strike me as odd that there are people in your time who want to try to convince me that I was a Christian. I, I was a Christian in a certain sense. I believe that Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived and that his ethics were pure and that they would revolutionize the world if we would only adopt them. But I did not believe that Jesus was the Christ that he was the son of God, that he suspended the Newtonian mechanics of the world, walking on water and raising Lazarus from the dead. And I did not believe that Jesus rose bodily to heaven on the third day. I don't subscribe to the concept of the Trinity. And so these are, are very well-known views. Anyone who wishes to can read a biography of me. There are specific studies of my religious views. My writings are available to the world, and they contain letters which are unambiguous about these questions. And yet, in your time, almost everywhere I go, there are individuals who want to convince me that I really believed what I didn't. <laughs> and well, they are sorry when I tell them the truth, which I do reluctantly, because I don't like to talk about things that are potentially controversial. And I, and I want to say to them, there are many founding fathers who come closer to their view of the world than I did. For example, George Washington, or John Adams, or Patrick Henry. And if they, if they want a more Christian outlook from a founding father, they should turn to those people. But I'm the last person that can really satisfy them, and I don't know why they won't leave it alone. Uh, do you have any sense of this? Well, because you're our guy, because you are the founding father. I mean, George Washington, we look to as the general that brought us our independence, but you're the one that launched it all. And... People also admire your mind, so they perhaps would prefer that it be in line with their own religious views. Um, I see that. I, I see that, and of course, and I and I do believe that one's religious views are 
a sacred matter. In other words, if you are a devout believer in the Trinity, there is no circumstance under which I would attempt to argue with you, ever. I, I respect your right to see the world as you do, and you do not deserve to have somebody debating you as if this were tax policy or right. you know the discussion of our foreign policy. So I feel very strongly about that. But I must say that I, I have my views. I can't pretend that I'm something that I was not. I believe that I'm rational. I believe that it's easier to believe in a Unitarian system as a reasonable scientist than it is to believe in the Trinity. For me, the Trinity, three is one and one is three and all of that, is a kind of metaphysics that just perplexes me and, and gives me a headache. And I don't yeah. see how any human being can understand it. And so they're arguing for irrationality, and I'm arguing for scientific proof and they're upset with me when, if there were really a, a free marketplace of ideas, I would I would have more reason to be concerned about them <laughs> as abdicating reason than yeah. they about me. Well, see, and then you went, and then there in St. Paul, you went on your little rant about St. Paul. It was not a rant, sir. I you, merely said that you know, and I'll bet. I, I, let me say this: I'll bet that nobody in that audience, or those two audiences or on this radio program, had ever heard me, sorry, had ever heard of the basis of the naming of St. Paul. In other words, you take it for granted, as if it were Cleveland or Los Angeles or New Orleans or Paris or Troy. You live where you live, you never really think about it. Why is Chicago, Chicago? Why is Denver, Denver? It's simply a convention. But the minute I say this, that it's odd that in this our free society, uh, a nation built on principles of the Enlightenment, we should name a prominent interior city after a New Testament saint. I think that got people's attention. They may have been sorry that I brought it up. Well, it wasn't like just that. Names. No, I, but you have to finish that thought then. It's not just that we named it after a saint, but a saint who you then went on to describe his beliefs as a bunch of nonsense or his writings as a bunch of nonsense. Am I misrepresenting you there? Well, of course, that language is a little more pointed than I might have used. But yes, I, I believe that that there was Jesus, who was this truly remarkable ethicist. And if we listened to him, the world would be a much better place. Right. He died. You know, he was executed by the Roman authority in conspiracy with the, the Jewish establishment. He was executed probably about 30 A.D. Then a sort of cult, a mystery cult, sprang up about him because the, those who knew him alleged that he had been bodily resurrected, and you can imagine that would get the attention of anybody. Well, see, and now, and now as you're telling the story, this is where people get a little uncomfortable. You just described the people who believe in the resurrection as a cult. Keep going. And, and they believe. And imagine if you died tomorrow, John. I don't wish this. But people around you then alleged that you had disappeared from the tomb had had ascended bodily to heaven and then had appeared before them from time to time. I mean, people would, would be either dismissive that this is insane, or they would be utterly um, flabbergasted. It's a miracle. It's, it's the a miracle. miracle. So, well, sure. So then, so so the cult starts. So then. <laughs> oh no, that's not the cult. The cult starts because. Okay, fine, fine, fine. So then along comes St. Paul, who never met Jesus, by the way. He was actually a persecutor of the new Jesus sect. 
He's on the road to Damascus. He has some sort of an epileptic fit. And out of it, he comes to believe that he has been visited by Jesus and that Jesus has asked him to stop persecuting his followers. And on the basis of this fall from a, a, a quadruped, Paul becomes the greatest of all of the supporters of the new Jesus cult. And, and because he knows so little about the actual Jesus, he begins to sort of think of, well, what how, what does this mean? And how if he was resurrected, what's the relationship to God? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. does this have anything to do with our sinfulness? And so then he weaves out of these very narrow fragments what becomes Christianity. But if Jesus had ever actually met Paul, let's say Jesus did come back during Paul's lifetime when Paul had written these remarkable letters, I feel certain that Jesus would have said, Paul, interesting stuff, but it has nothing whatsoever really to do with what I was or what I taught. Paul is Christianity, and Jesus is simply the historical figure upon which Paul, may I say, invented Christianity. I suppose this is why some people get edgy. This is why we don't hand out tomatoes before the show. This but, is why. But, but, you, but you see that I, I'm not being uh, sarcastic or well, divisive. Every I, I'm really faith, saying this is how it appears. Every faith requires a leap. Every, every denomination requires that you believe something extraordinary. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God. So I've all, you know, sure, I think a lot of people intellectually understand it's hard to believe. But we don't dwell on it or even worry about it because if you do believe in God at all, anything is possible. Yeah, it's metaphysical, but it's supposed to be. It's not human. But my young friend, uh, remember, I did not bring this up. I never bring this up. <laughs> well, I could go for the rest of time without bringing this up. I'm sure you could. Somebody from the audience brought it up, and they asked me, and I answered a little timidly. And then, of course, there's follow-up, and I'm drawn deeper and deeper into this. It's not something that I go around the world trying to stir the waters with all. Fair I'm enough. simply trying to be honest to my view. And so here's my suggestion. Mm-hmm. First of all, we can disagree as rational friends. Uh, I'm only I'm only saying what I felt as a, as a man who lived more than 200 years ago. But I would propose modestly that the people of St. Paul change the name of their city to Voltaire. Okay, I'll run that by them, but I don't think that's going to get a good hearing. Voltaire was a French philosopher one of the greatest writers of the Enlightenment. He was a secularist. He believed in the unlimited freedom of the human mind. I think Voltaire would be a superb name for a city at the Falls of St. Anthony, and that St. Paul, you know, late in my life, I said I hoped within 50 years every young American would be a Unitarian. And so you can see why a town named St. Paul might concern me a little. Okay, that's all interesting, but I think the big problem then uh, is if we have a city named Voltaire, the big question will be what do we call the Voltaire High mascot for the for the, the school football team? And I'm thinking the Voltaire Volts with little lightning bolts on the side of their helmets. What do you think of that, Thomas Jefferson? I was thinking of the Voltaire Rationalists. <laughs> The Voltaire Rationalists. It has a nice ring, don't you think? 
Yeah, sure, why not? Well, I'll tell you what. I will mention this to my radio audience in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I'll report back to you next week if they like the idea of changing the name of their city from St. Paul to Voltaire, and the now mascot will be the fighting rationalist. Or it wouldn't be fighting, would it? It will just be the rationalist. Is that correct? And then, and then maybe a triangle as the icon or the, a compass, you know, a, a protractor compass to show that mathematics and reason and science are the center of America's enterprise. 